Bass Reeves was born a slave, but after escaping from his master, he lived as an outlaw until the Emancipation Proclamation officially made him a free man. He went on to use the knowledge he gained during his time in hiding to become one of the most successful deputy U.S. Marshals of his day. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Sam, and today I'll tell you the tale of Bass Reeves, Deputy U.S. Marshal. Today's story takes place in the territory that would later become the state of Oklahoma. In 1834, this land was reserved for the forced resettlement of Native Americans, and as such, it was known as the Indian Territories. Until 1889, whites and blacks were not officially allowed to settle in this area. Moreover, the Native Americans forcibly settled there were permitted to police themselves. However, they were not allowed to punish people who were not members of their tribes. This created major jurisdictional problems, which in turn attracted miscreants and outlaws, making the Indian Territory some of the roughest, most lawless parts of North America. Until 1890, criminal jurisdiction for the entire Indian Territory belonged to Fort Smith, Arkansas. Because of its enormous mandate expanding over approximately 400 miles, the court of Fort Smith was the biggest criminal court in the United States. In order to police this vast territory, the courts hired roughly 75 to 100 deputy U.S. Marshals. These men would ride out, sometimes in groups, along with a cook and at least one posse man to make arrests. Usually, they would stay out for a month or more, bringing their prisoners along with them in wagons. Although the cook and posse men were paid on a daily basis, and the deputies were allocated 75 cents per day to feed their prisoners, deputy U.S. marshals really depended on the fees collected upon returning their prisoners or sometimes unwilling witnesses. Given the risks taken, the fees were often hefty, and deputies could make $400 or more per trip. But many of them paid the price in the end, and over 100 deputies lost their lives in the line of duty in the last quarter of the 19th century. Still, others turned to crime to supplement their incomes. One of the most successful deputy U.S. Marshals, and also one of the first black men appointed to that position, was Bass Reeves. Bass Reeves was most likely born in July of 1838, on the Arkansas frontier, though one census report places his birth in Texas in 1840. He was born a slave to William S. Reeves, who was the son of Irish immigrants to South Carolina and later moved to Arkansas and then to Texas. When the family moved to Texas sometime around 1840, they listed six slaves among their property. In his early years, Bass worked as a water boy and then as a field hand where he learned a lot about caring for animals, which would serve him well later in life. Because of his size, as an adult, Bass stood over six feet two inches tall, he was selected to assist the blacksmith and then later to serve as his master's companion. This position was one of honor and gave him the opportunity to learn about white culture. Because his duties included serving as his master's valet and bodyguard, he also learned how to use a gun. He was such a good marksman that his master entered him in shooting competitions, which he reportedly won. When the Civil War broke out, Bass Reeves accompanied his master, Colonel George R. Reeves, the son of his original owner, to the front. George Reeves was about a decade older than his slave and was a man of some repute in Texas, where he served as local tax collector and sheriff, before being elected to the Texas State Legislature. 
Sometime during the war, Bass ran away from his owner and went to live in hiding in the Indian Territory, where he learned the language of the Creeks and the Seminoles. He also learned where to hide in the Territory, because he was, until the Emancipation Proclamation, a fugitive from the law. Once again, his knowledge, both linguistic and behavioral, would help Bass in his law career. Around 1870, Bass moved to Van Buren, Arkansas with his wife Jenny and their four children. He acquired a farm worth approximately $100 and was listed as a farm laborer on the census for that year. He probably also worked as a scout and tracker and he bred horses. By 1880, Bass had had eight children. He would have two more over the next few years. The family continued to reside in Van Buren until 1887, at which time they sold the property to pay for Bass's legal fees as he faced trial for murder. They then moved to the outskirts of Fort Smith, where Bass was working as Deputy U.S. Marshal. Bass's career as a Deputy Marshal began around 1875, when Judge Isaac B. Parker assumed leadership over the court at Fort Smith. Reeves was certainly among the first African-American men hired as a Deputy Marshal, but the records are so poor that it's impossible to say with any certainty who was actually first, and it hardly matters either. He was early. His job was to arrest murderers, horse thieves, and bootleggers. I will note that the sale of whiskey was illegal throughout the Indian territories, but it was extremely profitable. Two dollars worth of whiskey acquired on the Arkansas border could be sold for twenty dollars within the territory. As a result, bootlegging, so named because whiskey smugglers would often hide flat bottles of booze in their boots, was the most common crime within the Indian territories. The deputies could not just arrest anyone they wanted, but only the people guilty of these three crimes. Although they could make arrests without a warrant, it was preferable to have a writ. We have several instances in the record in which Bass made an arrest, having witnessed a crime, and then wrote to the court to have a writ issued after the fact. Like other deputy U.S. marshals in the Indian Territory, Reeves would ride out on extended trips, capturing many felons, sometimes numbering as many as 17, before returning home. He was particularly effective in part because of his race. Although he could arrest people of any race, he tended to arrest more black and Indian offenders than white ones, although the majority of people actually arrested and tried at Fort Smith were white. The Indian population tended to work better with black deputies than with white ones. Moreover, Bass spoke their languages and knew their customs well. On top of all of this, Bass was a marksman second to none. He killed 14 outlaws in the line of duty, always after a firefight. The Winchester rifle was his weapon of choice, though he also carried two Colt pistols at his hips and a third hidden at the small of his back. His preferred crossbody draw was a split second faster than the alternative and gave him an edge in shootouts. Reeves did, however, have a significant handicap. Having been raised a slave, he was completely illiterate. When he received writs before going out into the field, he had them dictated to him. He memorized the name and description of the offenders as well as the appearance of the writs with them. According to a judge with whom Bass worked at the end of his life, Reeves was always successful in matching the warrants to the right criminals. He never made a mistake. This ability was truly remarkable and suggests that Reeves was a highly intelligent man in addition to a physically intimidating one. Reeves worked for the Fort Smith Court until 1893. 
at which time the jurisdiction over the Indian territories was divided and Reeves found himself working out of the court in Paris, Texas. Then, in 1897, he was formally reassigned to the federal court in Muskogee, where he spent the last decade of his career. When Bess moved to Muskogee, where he worked under Marshal Leo Bennett, the character of his career changed. As one of the two most senior deputies, Reeves became more or less a town cop, dealing with day-to-day offenses in Muskogee and its immediate environments, rather than riding around the prairie for months at a time. Reeves also found the time to start a new family there, marrying Winnie Sumner, a Cherokee woman. The pair lived in the downtown area along with three of Bass's sons and one of Winnie's daughters from her first marriage. Reeves continued to work as a deputy marshal until Oklahoma gained its statehood in November 1907, at which time the federal presence was significantly reduced. From that moment until the end of the 20th century, there would be very few opportunities for people of color in law enforcement in Oklahoma. However, cities with significant non-white populations were given devoted black police forces who held no power whatsoever over white people. It was one of these forces that Reeves joined in 1907. He became a beat cop in Muskogee, a position he held until he became ill in 1909. He died in his home in January 1910 at the age of 72. Given the surviving evidence, it's really difficult to characterize the career of Bass Reeves. Clearly, he was very effective. He arrested over 3,000 outlaws and managed to survive 32 years in federal service at a time when many deputy marshals did not. However, his reputation was a mixed one. Some looked on him as a trustworthy individual and praised his prowess with his gun and his ability to make arrests that other deputies failed to make. At the time of his death, the Muskogee Phoenix, a paper owned and operated by white people, printed that Bass never quailed in facing any man, that he is one of the bravest men this country has ever known. He was honest, fearless, and a terror to bootleggers. The paper goes on to add that he was polite as an old-time slave to white people and most loyal to his superiors. Others accused Bass of abusing his position. In 1891, for example, the Fort Smith Weekly Elevator accused Reeves of taking the law into his own hands when he arrested two white men accused of killing a black man. The paper relates that Reeves knew that the pair of prisoners were innocent of the charge, and yet he dragged them around Creek Country for a month, during which time their homes were burgled, even though he had made the arrests close to Fort Smith and could have brought them in more swiftly. There are similar articles accusing Bass of assorted misdeeds. However, it is difficult to know how to interpret such articles. Did Reeves really take the law into his own hands on this and other occasions? Or did he sometimes choose to kill outlaws instead of bringing them in just to make his life easier rather than because he was defending himself as he argued? Honestly, these sources are not sufficient to let us know, because many white writers and editors resented the authority of a black man, especially when he exercised power over white people. This racial prejudice can easily explain many of the accusations that were made against him. Two cases, however, are somewhat better documented and may prove illuminating. Bass Reeves' trial for murder in 1886 and his arrest of his son, Benny Reeves, in 1902. Let's begin with Bass Reeves' murder trial. Over the course of his career, Bass Reeves shot and killed 15 men. Fourteen of these were outlaws whom he had been ordered to bring in dead or alive. 
Their deaths were not, as far as we know, the subject of serious investigation. The 15th, however, was Reeves's cook, William Leach, who also happened to be a black man. In April 1884, Bass Reeves shot and killed William Leach. Reeves was arrested in relation with this crime in January 1886, having continued to act as Deputy U.S. Marshal during the interim. At the preliminary hearing that January, John Brady, Bass's cousin, who was also a member of his posse during that fateful journey, told his story. John said that the group had stopped for the night and there was a dog eating meat out of the skillet meant for the prisoners. Bass drove the dog away. Leach was angered by this move and threatened to kill Bass. Some time later, Bass got his gun and was putting a cartridge in when it went off and shot Leach. Reeves immediately sent someone to get a doctor, but they couldn't find one until morning. Leach died a few days later in spite of having received treatment. According to Brady's testimony, the two had gotten along well previously, and no one, including Leach himself, who was well enough to talk to the doctor before he died, believed that Reeves had intended to kill the cook. The trial was delayed several times, during which Reeves was released on bail for $3,000. After getting three of the best attorneys in Fort Smith, Reeves was acquitted by an all-white jury in October of 1887. The trial, however, wiped out all of his savings and forced him to sell his farm. We will never know what happened to William Leach, but the fact that the jury released Reeves and, indeed, that his superiors resisted the impulse to arrest him initially and then reinstated him as a deputy marshal as soon as the trial was over suggests that the slaying may indeed have been an accident. In any case, Reeves made no effort to escape justice. Reeves's confidence in the legal system was tested again, and perhaps more rigorously, towards the end of his life, when his son Benjamin was charged with murder in 1902. Once again, the details of the story are hazy. The tale that I am telling you is extracted largely from an interview with Reeves's youngest daughter, Alice. Benny Reeves, she tells us, married a beautiful black girl and settled down in Muskogee, but his marriage was not in good shape because Benny was often traveling. One day, he came home unexpectedly and found his wife in the arms of another man. Although he was furious, he understood that his neglect was partially to blame. So he found a new job closer to home, and they were happy for a time. Then, he found her once again in an adulterous affair. This time, he lost his temper. He beat up the man, and he killed his wife in a fit of rage. Then he ran away. A warrant was issued, but no one wanted to arrest Benny because his father was so well-liked, or, according to a different account, because Benny had sworn that he would not be taken alive and they didn't want to get shot. After two days, Bass came back from an expedition and came to see Chief Marshal Bennett. He demanded the warrant, insisting that he would bring his own son in, dead or alive. He disappeared for two weeks and then returned with his son. Bass then stayed with his son through the trial, at which his son pled guilty, and then Benny was sent to prison. All are agreed that while he was incarcerated, Benny Reeves was a model prisoner. As a result, he was able to get his life sentence reduced and was released from prison after serving 12 years. He returned to Muskogee where he lived peaceably, but he never married again or had a family. This story is likely biased given its source, 
But all of the sources agree, even those that accused Benny of killing his wife for no reason at all, that Bass brought in his son on his own and that he volunteered for the job. The official record states that Benny continued to have contact with his father, with Alice, and with two others. It also states that Bass arrested his son and that at the time of the arrest, Benny had two living brothers and three living sisters. What we can take away from this anecdote is that Reeves really does seem to have been devoted to the proper execution of the law. While he was willing and able to defend himself, as he did at his own murder trial, he was devoted enough to his job that he put it before family, at least in this instance, and arguably throughout his career. On the whole, Reeves's personal life is obscure, though not so much because of prejudiced reporting in this case, but rather because no one cared enough about his personal life to preserve it. After Bass married, he came back to his family often enough to sire ten children, but he cannot have been around much because he was always on the trail hunting down criminals. He was probably not living with his wife at the time of her prolonged illness or death. There's no record of him working in Fort Smith after the death of his oldest son, Robert, in 1893. His decision to work out of the court in Paris, Texas, however, probably didn't have much to do with sentimentality. There had been jurisdictional changes over the previous few years that gave the Texas court jurisdiction over the Chickasaw and Choctaw nations where Reeves preferred to work. The year 1893 also saw the appointment of a new U.S. Marshal for Fort Smith, one George Crump who had served in the Confederacy during the Civil War and was a devoted Democrat. Crump was not the first former Confederate soldier to serve in the post, but he might have made things less comfortable for Reeves, who was used to having a certain amount of professional liberty. Reeves's wife and at least three of his children remained in Fort Smith, as Reeves moved to Paris, Texas. His son Newland was working in the household of Judge Parker in 1894, but was removed from that post the next year when he and his brother Edgar were arrested, serving five and one year's prison sentences respectively. It seems likely that Reeves was not around enough to impart his apparently unwavering devotion to the law upon his children. When Reeves' wife Jenny died in 1896, at the age of 56, it was their daughter Alice's husband who made the funeral arrangements, or at least put his name on them and footed the bill. According to the 1900 census, Reeves lived with at least three of his children after he moved to Muskogee and, having remarried with his new wife and at least one of her children. By then, it appears, his itinerant days were behind him, and most of the work he did at the end of his life was based in Muskogee and the immediate vicinity. When he died, Bass's son-in-law, the same one who had paid for his first wife's funeral, acted as his executor. His estate did not exceed the value of $500 and was divided between his wife, two of his daughters, two of his sons, and two grandchildren. Having looked at Bass Reeves' three and a half decades of service, it seems obvious that he deserves a place in the history of law enforcement. But this place is a hard one to carve out. Records about black deputies were not preserved well, and newspapers were largely biased against them. Moreover, their legacy has been diminished by later media. They are, for example, massively underrepresented in the movies. While the achievements of Bass Reeves and others like him are difficult to reconstruct, it is worth remembering that there was a time when the face of law enforcement was diverse. 
This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.